Hello and welcome to the Aerospace Ambition podcast, hosted by Kieran, a PhD researcher from the University of Bristol, focusing on reducing aircraft emissions and their environmental impact, and myself, Marius, an aerospace engineer from Munich with a passion for sustainability. In this episode, we explore contrail management. Kieran, would you tell us a little bit more about our guest? Hey Marius, so today we welcome Mark Shapiro, the director of the Contrails team at Breakthrough Energy in the US. Mark and his team develop research tools to help mitigate aviation climate impact. In collaboration with research groups such as MIT and DLR, tech companies like Google, and operational bodies such as Eurocontrol and the National Air Traffic Service. As we've heard from our previous guests, Contrails are aircraft-induced clouds responsible for around 1-2% of total global climate impact. Mark leads the Contrails team at Breakthrough, which is pioneering progress on predicting exactly where these clouds might form and to what extent they may warm the climate. So today, we're going to dive into the details on the excellent work being done by Mark and his team at Breakthrough, as well as the challenges and opportunities that may lie ahead in this fascinating field. Welcome, Mark. Thanks for having me. Maybe we should start off by you giving a quick rundown on what your team does at Breakthrough and maybe introduce Pi Contrails and Contrails.org to the listeners. Sure. Yeah. So I lead a, I lead a group of um, researchers at Breakthrough Energy, and uh, it may be helpful just to mention that you know, Breakthrough Energy is a lar much larger organization than our just our group um, that's focused on really accelerating innovation across the whole technological and political landscape related to reducing climate impacts. Um, so we are uh, part of what they would describe as their discovery work, which is very early stage foundational research work, um, trying to uncover uh, really promising climate opportunities. So our group is pretty small. We've got a team of three or now four scientists. Um, and our focus is really to you know, look at what the science is out there right now and try to develop useful tools that can help transition the science to the industry. And then in the process of doing that, really flesh out our understanding of the atmosphere and the impacts that come from contrails. Thanks very much. Yeah. So I think those research tools include uh, PyContrails, which is, of course, the, the open source repository, which collates decades of uh, research in this field. All of this academic research that has been done has been sort of brought into this one repository. And it's, to me at least, like I find it so useful to have that. And I just wondered if you could elaborate a bit on that and talk a little bit about exactly what PyContrails is. Sure. Yeah, I really wish I had named it something else given how much uh, use it's been. Uh, but, but uh, you know, we're, we're stuck with the name and it, it's, it's app. So um, when we started the project, is now back in 2021. Uh, you know, we we heard of the project through the academic literature, and um, we decided to start looking into if if there's a way to be helpful in this transition from science to the industry. So one of the first things we did was try to implement some of the leading scientific models out there for contrail impacts. Mm -hmm. um, and what we found was there was actually very few resources for even the most basic correlations, like something like the Schmidt-Appelman criterion, which is a, um, a criterion for contrail formation in the atmosphere. And it yeah. 
it takes into account um, the, the relative humidity of the atmosphere, the temperature of the atmosphere, and the amount of heat getting exhaust by the engine. And it's a relatively simple relation. And it's been published in the literature in many different places, but we really couldn't find any kind of canonical implementation to reference against. Mm -hmm. And so we decided, oh, this is a great place. We could just, you know, write down our version of this and share it around and see if it if it's right. Um, and if so, then that's something we can share. Um, and then it sort of snowballed from there, you know, right. we did the Schmidt-Appelman criterion and started looking into ice supersaturation, which is, you know, seemingly a very simple meteorological characteristic. Um, this would be just to say, wh where is the relative humidity over the atmosphere supersaturated with respect to ice? But unless you're got a really strong background in thermodynamics, yeah. that actually is sort of a hard concept to wrap your mind around. <laughs> um, so we decided to implement that as a, as a model um, just to be really clear about, okay, this is how we're calculating ice supersaturation. Uh, there's many different ways that you could do this, but this is what we believe to be the canonical implementation. Um, and so this slowly grew over time. Um, we implemented more models and started developing some of our yeah. own. And we recently open sourced it back in April of 2023. So it was really exciting to see that it was actually useful to many other atmospheric scientists in the community. Yeah, absolutely. Just to clarify to the listeners, like ice supersaturation and relative humidity, these are all very important parameters to be able to measure to determine whether uh, these aviation-induced clouds, so contrails, whether they're going to form or not, and maybe how long they might live and how far they might spread throughout the atmosphere. So this is something which is, I think meteorologists have had a very difficult time over the years predicting this because it's it's so varied depending on exactly when and where you're flying in the atmosphere. So, Yeah, and it, it feels very important that uh, we have a common understanding. I mean, I think if there's any kind of foundational aspects of what our group is trying to do, we're trying to set out a baseline and a common understanding for a lot of these concepts surrounding contrails so that we can have a kind of a clear, transparent conversation about how we might mitigate their impacts. Um, so again, for something as simple as uh, ice supersaturation or the Schmidt-Appelman criterion, um, there's actually a lot of nuance built into those models. For instance, how do you calculate the efficiency of the engine and how does that efficiency actually impact the Schmidt-Appelman criterion. Um, it is yeah. well-researched since you know 1950s, but uh, I think you can't really challenge those assumptions unless you have a common understanding of what the baseline is. So having published this open source repository, how is this now translated into operational mitigation or avoidance uh, control management, so to say? Um, what is the current state of affairs? Who is doing what? Yeah, it's a, that's a big question. Um, so uh, it's, it's really important to us that the, at this point in time, any kind of operational contrail interventions need to be transparent because there is a lot of uncertainty. I mean, both of your previous guests have talked about this. Um, 
the uncertainty in the atmospheric conditions that form contrails and exactly how to forecast them is high enough um, that we're still trying to understand the atmospheric uh, condition. Um, and if we don't have common open models to do that, I think it's going to be really easy to have a, uh, what you might say, like a race to the bottom of any kind of mitigation technique. And um, so that's, that's one of the foundational yeah. components of our work is doing open work for now. Um, and then, uh, so your, your question, how does this get operationalized? So we have a hypothesis. Um, I think it's important to say that if you just tried to avoid all contrail forming regions of the atmosphere, it would be completely impractical from an operational perspective. You'd be rerouting like 30 to 50% of aviation. Um, yeah. And you'd be spending a lot of extra fuel uh, that you really shouldn't be. And it's really unnecessary because not, not all contrail forming regions are have the same climate impacts. So our sort of working hypothesis for how this would get implemented in practice is really to figure out how do you identify contrail forming regions with a high probability? And then of those regions, how can we figure out the regions that are going to have the greatest climate impacts um, for the whole contrail lifetime? So something that's often lost in this is that it's not just about contrail formation itself. You have to understand the persistence of the contrail regions. So, you know, if I fly through this region of the atmosphere and I form a contrail, it might last for 20 minutes. So it's considered persistent still, but its actual overall climate impact is, is pretty low. But then some other part of the atmosphere will, you know, persist for eight hours or 10 hours. Yeah. And we need to understand how we can differentiate between those different types of regions. And that's, that's a key part of operationalizing. Hmm. Does that answer your question? I feel like I might've gone a little off. It definitely does. And um, let me break it down a little bit more because it actually was a very high level question and a big question. So the steps that are involved, right? You pointed it out already would be the uh, prediction of weather. It would then be kind of a prediction of these ice supersaturated areas then you need to predict the contrail and also its involvement over lifetime. Mm -hmm. Next step is to then quantify the climate impact or the radiative forcing. And then, of course, afterwards, you need to basically evaluate right, mm -hmm. uh, and verify. Of course, if you take any intervention along that line, you need to verify um, how successful it basically was. And you mentioned that your role is to, well, shed a light on the certainties and how would you describe these uh, certainties along this process? So uh, where are the uncertainties very high at the moment and where are they at a sufficient level? That's, yeah, that's a great question too. So there are uncertainties at each step in that chain. I think the greatest uncertainty right now is just forecasting what the humidity will be in the atmosphere at any given time. You know, weather forecasts have come a really long way and they're surprisingly accurate out even to a week now at the surface level. But often it hasn't been as well defined at the cruise levels that we really care about, um, mostly because, you know, that's not what the weather companies are optimizing for. They're, 
they're really optimizing for those surface level conditions. So it's it's really only recently that we've cared about what the humidity is at 30,000 feet or 35,000 feet. And that one specific value, the relative humidity with respect to ice, it really controls most of the uncertainty, both from the formation side all the way through downstream to how long is the contrail going to persist and therefore how how much time will it have to affect the radiative balance of that part of the atmosphere. Um, so RHI, relative humidity over ice, is definitely the greatest source of uncertainty. I think where we're getting a little bit more clarity is, is around how emissions will nucleate ice particles and then how that correlates with that persistence metric. So if you have higher soot emissions coming out of your engine, um, you're going to have more soot nucleation sites or ice nucleation sites, um, which means that your, you know, your contrail will be denser to start. Hmm. Um, and that can affect its lifetime. And there's been some really exciting campaigns, um, even as recently as last month, where uh, there's a plane carrying a, a bed of sensors flying behind a commercial jet measuring the emissions coming out of the engine and then looking at the actual contrail composition of that cloud um, over certain timescales. And, and in some ways that's uncovering more questions than answers, but I think it is, it's helping us, especially in the more traditional emissions regimes, quantify what the, what the ice nucleation is going to be behind an engine. Hmm. Um, so I think kind of the, the relationship between aircraft performance, emissions, Contrail formation is getting better. I also think that we have a, a generally pretty clear idea that uh, an individual contrail and then you know multiple contrails together that form a synthetic cirrus region have a radiative impact. It's fairly easy to to see that from satellite imagery. Hmm. Uh, I remember just last month I was looking at some satellite imagery and I saw this contrail outbreak over the center of the US off of the GOES imagery. GOES is a geostationary satellite run by NASA. And um, using some algorithms developed by uh, MIT and Google, we can actually uh, translate that image into something where you can see the contrails forming really well. And you could see that almost over the entire center of the US from Texas up to Oklahoma, west to Kansas, kind of north to Illinois, the entire center of the U.S. was contrail-formed cirrus. There was nothing there, and then all of a sudden, you could see the streaks of contrails slowly forming into a cirrus cloud. And it, it really struck me because that is what we're targeting. Um, you know, there was no pre-existing cirrus, and um, you can measure mm. compared to the the ground nearby the difference in outgoing radiation and say, okay. Here's the radiation being absorbed by that synthetic cirrus cloud. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so you, are you saying that the ISSR prediction is potentially the, the largest source of uncertainty? What would you say about the relative forcing and the actual climate impact measurements that, that we're making or the predictions that we're making? Yeah. So the, I think the radiative forcing, maybe this is where I was going with that last right. statement. Um, the radiative forcing, yeah. I think, instantaneously is something we can measure, especially on a clear sky day. I think if you're talking about radiative forcing when there's underlying clouds or overlying cirrus is a much tougher question and not something we really have the capability to do right now. But 
if you're saying on a clear sky day, you have a contral outbreak and you want to measure the radiative forcing, it's fairly easy to observe and measure case by case. We don't have a great way of scaling that to say, okay, automatically measure the radiative forcing of the whole globe all the time. The, it's really important we don't conflate that with climate impacts because the, there's a whole other discussion around how does that near instantaneous radiative forcing translate into things that matter to humans like surface temperature or rainfall or economic impacts. And that's a very, very complicated question. I think there's a lot of really good work going on to try to grasp okay. the metrics that we yeah. use to quantify it. Uh, and and even how we would translate something that's near instantaneous to something that's a hundred years down the road. Yeah. Um, but I think it, it is very clear that if we were to remove a cloud, like I was describing, you know, something on a clear sky day, you're synthesizing a cirrus cloud that, you know, would be overnight. Um, so there's no reflective solar radiation to worry about. Um, removing that from the system should be a net benefit. Yeah. I think that's been known since the, the 80s, roughly, that you know, cirrus is a net warming effect. If we're just talking about nighttime contrail cirrus, yeah. you can be generally sure that if you remove that, it's going to have a net benefit to the climate. And where it gets thorny is then how do you, at what cost? You know, like mm -hmm. we, we all agree that that's a net warming force. We should try to remove it because it's human caused. But what is the what is the cost that's worth removing that for? And I think that's where the discourse really falls. Yeah. It gets more complicated, right? Because it becomes a values issue. Like, do you value short-term climate impacts mm. or do you value long-term climate impacts? And that's more of a policy question and something like as a society we need to wrestle with. Yeah, maybe just going back to the weather forecasting side of it all as well. So, of course, to be able to predict contrails, you need to know what's going on with various different weather parameters with humidity, temperature and pressure being um, up there as the most important. So there's open source weather data. So you've got ECMWF, which is basically global models which generate data on weather forecasting. But then you've also got the sort of higher resolution approaches such as what Satavia are doing and, and predicting these control specific weather products that we need. So what do you see as the trade-off there between using those two different approaches and whether like you've got ECMWF, you can apply a scaling to that data, you can parameterize it. Do you think that's anywhere near as accurate as if we completely recalculate these weather products? I mean, I would love to see a recalculation of the weather products that was available to the whole community. Um, I, I don't think there's anybody would argue with the idea that we need better weather in the upper atmosphere mm -hmm. um, at a higher resolution. The challenge is that it's just extremely expensive to run that computation with the current methods that are used. So, you know, weather forecasting is, is done by just discretizing the whole atmosphere and, you know, letting the physics resolve in these long computations. So it's very computationally intensive. If something like the Cetavia weather was available, I would assume it would be better than ECMWF. I think it's a it's a still a question of is it so much better that it's worth the computational cost yeah. of running a model specific for contrails, um, and I don't think we have a good answer to that yet. Talking about cost in this context, we see a disruption in weather forecasting as well, right? Uh, 
last year, I mean, whether it was Google or UOY, they put out models that outperformed, or I don't want to say outperformed, but they had a very good uh, prediction scores um, over, I don't know, maybe five days, for example, of time. And uh, it was uh, the, a fraction of a thousand or something was the factor of computing costs, right? Do you also see an application to predict ISSRs? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think there was some work put out um, by a Google research team, actually not the Google research team actually working on contrails, but another Google research team recently published a, a note on a model they're calling GraphCast, which is you know a completely machine learning driven weather forecasting system. And their numbers looked really good uh, for accuracy. And, you know, it, it, like you said, it's, it, it's thousands of times less computationally intensive. I think one thing that's interesting about those mo models right now is they still rely on the current weather forecasts to initialize them. So you're not getting rid of the existing weather forecasts, you're just making them more accurate. So I think th the current level of machine learning as it relates to weather right now is, is improving accuracy, not wholesale replacing the weather forecast. But mm. I certainly see a future in which the weather forecast will be trained on earlier data and just be better at predicting the outcomes. So, so are you speaking, Marius, specifically to the Google research team that's working on contrails and their predictions of contrail formation regions? Yeah. Yeah. I'm speaking to Google. <laughs> I mean, uh, I am aware that um, there is this team uh, working on on Graphcast as well, or WeatherBench, right, to mm -hmm. to uh, benchmark uh, different kinds of weather models. And this was um, a high level kind of observation that uh, why don't we apply one thing to the other? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, if it's about computing costs, mm -hmm. you just pointed out this very interesting point of initialization, and you know the requirement to then still have all of these large um, data points. So. So that is something we'd, we'd have to uh, drill down on then. Yeah, yeah it's, I want to step back to, I should have mentioned at the outset of the program when you were talking about management techniques, mm -hmm. we have focused our efforts primarily on forecasting techniques. How do you forecast high probability, high warming control regions? But there is a um, really nicely symmetric approach, which we're also now working on uh, which is, can you just observe contrail outbreaks and act on them in near real time? Um, so contrail observations are super important, not least from the evaluation perspective. Like you need to understand how effective your model and intervention strategies are going to be by observing what actually happened. So there is a team at Google Research um, working specifically on contrail detection, mm -hmm. um, and they've made a, a ton of progress. Um, building on collaboration with an MIT team that started working on contrail detection a few years prior. Um, and collectively, they've, they've created some models for detecting contrails from satellite imagery that are really accurate and, and really exciting. And so, you know, what I, what I love the idea of is you're never going to get away from forecasting in the sense of, you know, the aviation industry needs a way to predict where these regions are going to be even if it's three hours ahead of the flight. You can't do this completely tactically. It would be too invasive into the system. But the tactical aspect of it is going to help 
make sure that any interventions are really effective, right? Yeah. So you have your best guess at where you want to intervene. And then these machine learning models that detect contra formation in real time will feed right back in and and refine what what you had, you know, essentially refining your prior, if you use the probabilistic sense, to make sure that you, you know, whatever cost you put into it is really worth it. And the Google research team has gone even farther and developed a prediction model based on their detection. So I think this is what you were getting at, where you can actually train a model that looks at the weather and looks at the detected contrails and predicts where you're going to detect contrails based on the weather. Yeah. And that will only help improve our accuracy and reduce the uncertainty in the weather forecast. Very quick follow-up question. When we speak about real-time, what is the real-time actually? Because there will be a latency, right? Even getting back the satellite data. Um, what is what is that latency in that short-term process? Because yeah. you pointed out, I'm glad you circled back, by the way, because that's definitely something we need to touch upon, is this pre-tactical approach versus this tactical um, approach and uh, often referred to as real-time. And I'm using air quotes, which you can't see on the podcast, but basically how real-time is it? Yeah, I mean, you get satellite imagery within minutes from geostationary satellites. And the processing for detection takes seconds um, because machine learning models are really, really effective at inference, right? Training them takes mm -hmm. hours, days, weeks. But once you have the actual weights actually running, the detection is, is really quick, especially if you've got Google's level of compute at your fingertips. So, You know, we see that feeding back into the system within minutes, uh, at, you know, at an operational stage. I think the harder question is you don't see all contrails. And for a contrail to become visible in satellite imagery, it can take up to a half hour. Um, and so one, one of the benefits of using satellite detections is that in general, you will only see persistent contrails. You're only going to see contrails after They've already persisted a half hour. Right. The downside is it's already been a half hour. The plane's already moved on. So really you're informing the next plane that's coming down the pipe that, okay, there was a contrail formed at this flight level 30 minutes ago. And the weather forecast says it should still be forming here. So we're going to tell you go up or down Yeah. Um, based on the optimization. So this inherent um, limitation with regards to the temporal resolution is also a way to increase certainty because then uh, you only look at the persistent ones, let's say, right? Right. I, I mean, unfortunately, you you only see the persistent ones and you generally only see them where it's already clear sky. I mean, luckily, I say unfortunately, but luckily, it's all the conditions where we actually care about the most. Mm -hmm. So in general, you're detecting contrails that you want to avoid. Um, And so there is a there is a like a benefit to that down selection, but you're definitely not seeing all contrail formation that might be harmful. Right. And um, looking at this machine learning approach that Google took uh, right there, as you pointed out, so they are taking weather data and satellite observations and then train a, a neural net on it to make a prediction about a contrail. And then also, you know, whether it's a pixel or, or linearization into um, a contrail, that is basically their approach. Earlier, I asked you about weather models and, you know, machine learning approaches to that. Now I want to make a step back and ask, was this a clever question? Because if you can make the whole process end-to-end -end a machine learning process, 
wouldn't that you know be the better approach so i'm asking you as the researcher to have maybe a gut feeling here um why do you need these intermediary steps then or even weather products you know that you alluded to earlier when you could maybe make the whole process end-to-end -end a machine learning process i would agree with you i think in the long long term and i don't know what that means i'm i'm just saying not this year uh <laughs> long-term in AI. I think that this, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think that you could, uh, we sometimes will call this a proxy model in, in our terms. Like you can create a proxy model that takes whatever your input set is and predicts your output set faster and better than more traditional physics-based models. Um But, you know, this is my opinion now, as especially coming from more of a physics fluid dynamics background, I want to understand the physical intuition behind what we're predicting before we train a proxy model. And I also want to make sure that the outputs that we're training against are exactly the outputs that we want to predict. Um, and once we assimilate all of those sources together, We're going to have a corpus of ground truth and we're going to say, great, you can now train against this. And if you can predict this, uh, you know, with the highest accuracy and uh, intervene based on those predictions, we're going to have success. I think we're still not at the point where we agree on what ground truth is and what we can train against there. So I think in a way, like I have these really delightful conversations with the Google team where, you know, we like our approach, they like their approach. And we both think that we've got ground truth, but actually together it's much stronger because, you know, you, you kind of need to take an assimilation of approaches to get at the most accurate output. Um, and I think we will get to that in the next year or two, but then will the proxy model be better than the physics model or something that's got weather in it? It's, it, It's hard to say. Like our models run really fast. They run about as fast as the machine learning inference, but someday the machine learning inference will be more accurate. Yeah. Well, that also would have to be like physics informed as well. So like having physics built into the system as well, because currently it's just a black box, right? You've just got a neural net, which is learning from the data and it's, it's being trained on a particular data set, which is generally just imagery i think is that is that right mm -hmm. so it's generally just images so satellite images observational data that they're feeding in and they're basically learning from that data and then giving out predictions based on the images that they've seen so it's, it's not incorporating physics whatsoever and especially when it comes to something like ice cloud microphysics where it's based on a lot of very hard science right like it's <laughs> you, you probably would need that sort of physics informed approach You might. I mean, I think in the near term you do because the machine learning models right now are just predicting contra formation. They're not predicting RF yet. But I think that if you okay. yeah. if you have the physical model that, or, or I should say the observational model, but most observational models have some amount of physics baked into them. If you know what the output is that yeah. you want, whether it's formation, ready to forcing, persistence, and you know that very well, I think machine learning, no matter how much of a black box the internals are, will outperform correlation, It, you know, especially nonlinear correlation, where you're kind of pulling together a bunch of empirical correlations and, and sort of 
you know, unless you're running something like a climate or weather model where you actually put in the partial differential equations and you let it evolve. But like we said, it's really computationally intensive. Yeah. But I, I do really like the future, the work that's going on for physics informed machine learning models. I think that this is a great application of that kind of work. Yeah. I guess that takes us on to the discussion about regulation. So what do you see as the most pragmatic way to regulate contrails? Do we need like a neutral arbiter who can sort of oversee the the MRV, so the measurement, reporting and verifying of contrails? I think that that's probably going to be a necessity, right, at some point in the future. Um, and do you see a lot of new startups uh, coming into the space as well? Because currently it's only a very small number of companies that actually um, are carrying out this work. So what do you see the future of regulation in this space? It's, it's a really good question. It's, that is hard for, for me to answer. And I, you know, I'm going to sort of skirt around it a little bit, but um, I think one of our goals is to set this foundation, set this baseline that allows both for-profit and policy development to happen. So I think right now there's still just a lot of hand scientific hand wringing around uh, you know what do we know, what don't we know? I think our goal is to try to aggregate a lot of those pieces and help uh, all of the different players kind of have a common agreement about what we know and what we don't know. And then that would allow that baseline allows there to be a for-profit a commercial industry based on okay we have a we have a benchmark we need to baseline against that benchmark and we can do it better than anybody else. Exactly how we assign a value to that or an incentive. I know you guys have talked about the carrots and the sticks before. It's really hard for me to say. I think right now we're really excited to see the voluntary action on behalf of the industry. So we have all of the airline partners we need without any kind of incentive because they know they need to get ahead of this. And so we're able to do the trials we need to do. We're able to get the investment from the airline side without there being a regulatory framework yet. Of course, in the long term, if you want every airline to avoid all the regions we deem worth avoiding, it's going to take some amount of regulatory or incentive action to do so. I think Kieran and I are both proud that you're referencing earlier episodes. <laughs> and um, to, to follow up on that, You mentioned that it might make sense for airlines to act proactively, right? And uh, there are options, for example, to issue credits for that, right? So one motivation could be to look at the balance sheets and look at the risks that might be, you know, attached to uh, schemes like Corsia or MRV uh, and to basically anticipate those risks by already investing into those kinds of technologies. So that's one kind of motivation. But then... To make it even more uh, monetary, one could also think about um, a carbon credit system that is, you know, on the side um, of the current MRV scheme, let's say. How do you think about that? I think it's really important not to dilute any kind of motivation for decarbonization on the, on the aviation side. So any scheme that even kind of inadvertently might um, affect sort of the pace of decarbonization is not a, a good idea, in my opinion. I'm, I'm, so it's getting out over the tips of my skis there a little bit. But um, 
Yeah, so so in terms of CO2 equivalents, I mean, we use CO2 equivalents as a metric to just wrap our minds around the magnitude mm -hmm. of what we're describing. Yeah. Um, it's a very useful statistic because it's it's the language of climate change right now. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that's so exciting about working on this topic is that we're moving away from CO2 being the only climate impact that we talk about. You know, in this case, we're talking about radiative forcing, near instantaneous radiative forcing. And so it's going to require an entire new language and way of working to understand and um, incentivize changes in radiative forcing. And so I think, I, yeah, just to, it's a very loose comment to say, I would be careful about too much specific CO2 equivalents because there's the potential that it it's going to be cheaper to act on contrails than other decarbonization strategies, and it would dilute those strategies. That definitely makes sense. And I mean, it's definitely a, an effort that needs to be taken by many people and many institutions in parallel. And so many opinions come together, right, to, uh, to basically form that metric. And since I've been spending time on this topic, what I found fascinating is how many institutions work together. Like you can see all of those logos are on every slide, basically, like everyone um, interacts. So I'm wondering, given how certain we are about the negative impact of this problem for the environment, um, is this only is this only a problem that can be tackled by these large corporations given you know the large size of the industry already um is it something that makes it uh, very special um in a way that it can't be tackled by smaller entities or you know i guess to rephrase the question a little bit what makes this problem so special that despite the enormous negative impact that there is there aren't many startups in the scene but rather large consortia and large groups of, I guess, research institutions? So, yeah, I mean, it, it's a really, it's a really good question. I, I have the same question, to be honest. Um, but I think a big part of it is that this will be really cheap to abate. Like once we can agree on volumes of atmosphere that we need to avoid, and I, you know, all methodology aside, whether you predict it, or you observe it, we we've decided this kind of volume has the climate impact that we deem worth spending some amount of added CO2 on, or potentially it doesn't cost any added CO2, so definitely just avoid it. To, to actually in, implement that is very cheap. Like what our simulations show this costing an airline over their entire network of aircraft, like 0.07% wow. of added yeah. costs. It's non-zero. There's a real added cost there, right? But it's essentially zero in the like grand scheme of climate interventions. Uh, when you talk about SAF and you're saying it's going to be thousands of dollars per ton of CO2 abated, you know, we're looking at numbers that are a thousand times less than that in terms of kind of relative uh, climate benefit. So I think the reason there isn't more commercial investment yet is there isn't actually that much money to be made yet until until somebody, mm. and I think this is downstream of what our work is doing. I mean, again, we're trying to establish that baseline so that everybody can say, okay, these are the volumes of air that we want to avoid and are worth avoiding at these costs. 
at that point, I think an entire commercial ecosystem could be built to say, okay, we're going to help you avoid those volumes of air as cheaply as possible. And because your airline consumes, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, billions of dollars of fuel a year, if I can do that more efficiently for you, then I'm going to save you money and, and, and you know, provide a profit motive for our existing. Um, the other side of it is, you know, in the future, there could be some kind of RF credit system, like you mentioned. Um, I, I would not want it to be in the same units as CO2 tons, but mm. if that's what it is, you know, assume there's some kind of RF credit system that would provide another profit motive for a commercial entity. But again, I really, our, our focus is to avoid the race to the bottom and becoming just another carbon offset industry. We, we want there to be you know, very clear um, regions that should be avoided. And then you can kind of innovate on how you avoid those most efficiently. Yeah, so there's a very contentious debate over whether we should just keep flying the way we do now, um, obviously most fuel efficient routes, or whether we should do climate optimized routing, which is uh, essentially avoiding contrail forming regions and also potentially regions where you might generate a lot of ozone in the presence of NOx. So this debate seems to be like it's, it's very divided over, there's, there's no consensus whatsoever over whether we should get on with trials now and whether we should bring this into service as soon as possible or whether we should really just wait and just keep on doing the research. Um, I'm just wondering if you think that that is, is that more of a, a blocker? Is that more of a something which is blocking progress on this field more so than the financial incentivization side of it? I, yeah, I don't think so. I mean, I think, you know, the IPCC wrote about this in 1999. They keep revising, you know, the estimates, but they're all roughly similar. You know, mm -hmm. it used to be higher, 4 to 5% of anthropogenic climate forcing. Now maybe it's 2 to 3% is contrail-induced cirrus. I mean, th those are huge numbers in, in the grand scheme of things. And so I think the motivation to work on the problem is unchanging. Sure. I think, and it's agreed upon that there is a, a high net warming force from synthetic cirrus. I think the, the contention, and, and it's, it's a very like reasonable question, is at what cost is it worth trying to avoid specific contributions to that whole number. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that is where we're doing our research. I, I, our, our activities would remain unchanged in the sense of, you know, we need to figure out w which of these volumes of air are worth avoiding and at what cost. Um, and can you actually do it in practice? Like, operationally, given all the other challenges of the aviation industry, mm. if you know that volume of air, can you execute uh, the intervention at scale? And, and both of those questions can be answered without making a judgment on, um, you know, how, what is the incentive going to be or like exactly how do we scale this up to be deployed? So, so I think the motivation is sure. there and I don't think it affects our motivation to work on the problem at all. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I should say if we get down this road, you know, like any good scientist, you know, if we start seeing that we are making interventions, it's not having the benefits that we expect, 
um, and we can't control the problem the way we expect to, we're not going to keep, you know, pushing on it and do, doing it just to say we did it. Um, I mean, our goal is to figure out how, how to do this um, and, and, you know, to relay that to the industry mm. as quickly as we can. Yeah, I think a lot of the, well, I guess a lot of the uncertainty is around the metrics we choose as well. What are the time horizons that we decide to base our, our measurements on? So it comes down to how long do contrails live for compared to CO2? Obviously, CO2 lasts in the atmosphere for potentially hundreds of years. Um, and I think that that is a big area that there's still not really consensus on, um, as well as the aerosol effect, yeah. how they may play a role in potentially leading to a cooling effect, which we don't really know yeah. I much think, about at all right now. Sorry to interrupt you. I think it's just, it's worth mm. mentioning that the aerosol effect will be unchanged by navigational avoidance. So when we say navigational avoidance of contrails, we mean flying up or down. Um, yeah. you're still going to have the same potential aerosol cooling effects regardless of that. And we would like to see a little bit more research into, or really just segregation of the existing research into effects that are caused by contrail cirrus and the effects that are caused by aerosols. Cause it's our hypothesis yeah. that actually contrail cirrus warming has a higher effective radiative forcing than it looks like because aerosol effects are being encapsulated by that um yeah. of course if you we didn't talk about this at all but you could mitigate contrails by using uh, low aromatic fuel or sustainable aviation fuels and i think you guys talked about this previously too um mm. and that will help it's it's a little bit harder to quantify exactly how much that will help um and it's interesting to point out that that will actually have a reduction in that potential aerosol cooling effect too. So it becomes a thorny issue as you, as you start unpacking the whole, yeah. um, <laughs> all of the effects. Okay. So for breakthrough, I mean, breakthrough, you guys take a certain approach to this problem and that's very data driven and very software driven. I recently stumbled across this um, initiative by the Department of Energy, ARPA-E, which basically funded like, I think, $10 million or something into different kinds of solutions, right? Um, so not only software, but maybe also hardware, maybe also sensors. Was there anything in there or maybe beyond that um, that, that gives you hope that maybe could expand um, uh, how rich the data is that we have? Yeah, absolutely. That, the RPE program is super exciting. And there's a, a similar program in the works in the UK right now. Um, you know, the goal is, like we talked about, there's very few observations of weather at the higher altitudes. Um, and so weather forecasts struggle to predict accurately at those altitudes because there's no truth to, to assimilate into their models. The RPE program has the potential to, you know, expand those observations by orders of magnitude. And so we would have a much clearer picture of what the upper atmosphere looks like with those observations. I think it doesn't change the end-to-end -end process that we've already talked about here, where, you know, when you look at this holistically, contrail mitigation as a whole, you know, it starts before the flight. You have to predict what's going to happen at flight time so that you can plan your route effectively, optimally. Then you get up to flight time and um, you're observing. And that's where these measurements are gonna really help 
you're going to be able to see, okay, in real time, we predicted that these regions were going to be super saturated, but they're not. So we can actually correct our predictions. And then after the fact, you can look back at the models and in Hindcast run them with all those observations assimilated into the models. And so you have a much clearer picture of what the atmosphere actually looked like with all those added observations. Um, but again, our focus is sort of more of a pragmatic one. It's like, what is the standard that we're going to need to get the data from beginning all the way through that system? Right. And there are individual components that will get improved along the way by these other programs. Okay. If we look in the crystal ball in 2030, how do you imagine control management at that point? Do you dare to take a bet what it could look like in reality? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, as complicated as this is, you know, contrail management is just another layer of a weather product. Like at the end of the day, you can think of contrail management just like the turbulence forecast. Mm. Um, in 2030, I would expect that, you know, aviation service providers at the up and down the whole chain will have access to some kind of contrail data, both ahead of time and in real time. That's just another, you know, value in their weather data product. I am not going to uh, try to predict what the incentive or regulatory structure is. That's for, you know, it has a lot of value propositions baked into it. And I think that's, that is a question for the policymakers to decide how do you value short-term versus long-term uh, forcing agents. Right. We already passed on a question from our previous guest. That was Nikhil. You might have uh, noticed it was the question around the arbiter. And uh, you definitely provided a very uh, holistic kind of answer to that. And uh, we will also want to give you the opportunity to pass on a question in that long tradition of the podcast to pass on a, a question to our next guest, which will be Professor Ian Paul, also known from the Paul Schumann model that is used in this whole context. Is there anything that comes to your mind that we could pass on? Any kind of question, anything we should discuss with him? Um, well, so one of the things that we is a real challenge to us is understanding how aircraft performance will affect downstream control forcing. Um, and, you know, we use Ian Pohl's model. We're very grateful for it since it's the only open source aircraft performance model that um, uh, we have access to right now and that that um, has all the, the outputs that we need to be able to run our contrail models. Um, it's not the only aircraft performance model open source out there, but it, it's the one that um, has everything we need. And I think it'd be really interesting to me to understand how we can essentially like non-dimensionalized aircraft performance and contrail modeling. We want to make sure that at the end of the day, like I said, there's one value in a weather layer that represents con the contrail climate impacts. In order to do that, we need to bake into account the aircraft performance somehow into that value. And we find the relationship between aircraft performance and contrail forcing is, is something that's really hard to factor out. And I'd be interested to hear from him some ways that we could non-dimensionalize aircraft performance in contrail modeling. Would that be essentially aggregating things like aircraft efficiency, 
soot emission index, so how much soot you're releasing from the engine, um, maybe some aerodynamic parameters as well. Is this are these all things that yeah, exactly. have to be taken into account? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Look forward to hearing Ian's answer on that. Pretty technical question for your podcast audience. <laughs> that's what I would ask him. Yeah. In in person. Right. Good one, good one. We we really uh, do appreciate that. So to wrap things up, I'd say in the beginning, you said that uh, when you called the repository PyCon Trails, you would have liked uh, calling it differently, right? So maybe how, how would you like to call it if, if you had a second chance to reflect more of what you're doing? Yeah, um, well, I'm really bad at branding. This is why I I get help when I need to call name and design things. I'm not the person to ask. Um, I really like the term aviaticus, which is just, I guess, some colloquial term for contrail serif that uh, people use. And I also found there was a uh, mm. a metal guitar player who recorded a record with different songs for different cloud types. And the aviaticus song was my favorite. So, um, reason enough, I think I would use that term somehow in the future. Uh, maybe not as the name of the repository, but maybe it's the name of the future contra forecast model that aggregates all of these pieces into one place. Sounds like a winner. <laughs> Aviaticus. Okay. Sounds good. Well, Mark, this was a pleasure. Thanks a lot for being our guest. And uh, is there anything that our listeners should look into? Uh, I saw that you were hiring someone, an engineer, but that was already weeks or months ago even. So probably right <laughs> now there are no open positions, but is there um, anything people should look into? Yeah, I, um, I mean, one of our main focuses is on communication and education of the topic. And we didn't really talk about this earlier, but... Um, Some of the most fun we've had is developing some of the communication tools um, like our Contrail map, which is, um, I think we mentioned earlier, contrails.org is our website and you can see our Contrail map there. And it shows an estimate of Contrail Cirrus and the instantaneous warming that it would have from all of global aviation in near real time. And um, I think that is something we would love people to check out and give us feedback on. We want that to help educate the world about these impacts that you know co2 is not the only climate impact we have um, and then on top of that we just released an app for control observation from the ground um, and our goal is to you know eventually generate a corpus of ground-based observations and and airborne observations actually it works from planes so if you're on a flight and you have the app you can take a picture of contrails from above or below And we'll get the um, kind of the the location and the atmosphere of that contrail, and then we'll use that to improve the model. So um, look for the Contrails Observer app on the stores and go check out the map. And you'll see the observations on the map if you take them. So kind of a fun end-to-end -end, uh, Contrail Observer experience, you know. Yeah, sounds good. I've already downloaded it, uh, I think, months ago and uh, took a picture here and there behind my desk out of the window <laughs> of some contrails. I hope it helps Great. as some kind of a label. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you, guys. Thanks for coming on the show. Speak soon. Bye, Mark. Thank you, Mark. Speak soon. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.